Uh, Our text this morning is going to be from John chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 19. So this is kind of a a traditional Palm Sunday text, the triumphal entry. All the Gospels talk about this event. Um, They talk about it in similar but diverse and different ways. Um, John's account in particular, and we'll get that into that in a little bit, has a certain perspective that I found uh, compelling and meaningful. And so we're going to um, take a look at John's perspective on the triumphal entry, Jesus coming into Jerusalem uh, on his way to the cross to be crucified. And this marks uh, in the life of the church and the church calendar historically um, what we know as Holy Week. And so this is the beginning um, of that celebration for us as we start getting toward Easter. So if you'll uh, stand with me, we'll just um, show, the, show the prominence the Word of God has in this, this gathering, just symbolically by standing, and I'll read uh, John chapter 12 and, and verses 12 through 19. So John tells us that the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. And when Jesus was glorified, And they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. I guess just verse 18 is what I got. So go ahead and have a seat and then let's pray as we um, get started here. Father, thanks again for this opportunity. Just pray that you would uh, guide us this morning as we just look at your word and look at these uh, verses and uh, think about the implications that they have. And I pray again that we would just have a sense for who you are, uh, that would we, invite, we would invite um, just a, an understanding of who you are into our, our existences. Um, And Father, I also can't help but just uh, think about the tragedy that happened uh, even this week. And already um, uh, just just something that is on many of our hearts and our minds uh, in Nashville, in the shooting, yet another school shooting. Um, It it feels like saying anything uh, just isn't enough but all we have is our words and right now, and we also have our actions. We pray that you would use both. Uh, but we also just want to mourn and acknowledge the pain and the suffering that is happening um, all over the country in many homes and lives, especially those directly affected at this school in Nashville. So oh, come, come, come in uh, comfort, comfort, uh, Help us as we process these things. Help us to acknowledge that um, not only are you a God who sees, but you are a God who is there, who is here with us. We don't understand 
why and how, and we are angry and frustrated, rightfully so, but we also pray that you would give us um, comfort and also give us courage in knowing how to respond and how to act in these kinds of situations, that would use our voices and our votes, and you would use our um, uh, just our compassion and our love for you and our love for others um, to be able to affect change if possible. We thank you for um, all that you have uh, again done in our lives. We pray that this would be a time where we can just remember that and celebrate that. In your name we pray, amen. Maybe some of you remember this, but around probably the beginning of February of this year, um, reports started hitting my social media feeds and eventually blogs and articles that there was some kind of a revival that happened on the college campus, uh, Asbury University in Kentucky, a small town. I had never heard of Asbury University before and that people were saying that there was a revival or an awakening or a movement of God in this college campus. Uh, So the reports are coming in, you know, I'm kind of, it's in the periphery, all the news that we're getting, and then it's just getting louder and louder, started hitting the mainstream uh, news sites, um, you know, from the New York Times to the Atlantic to CNN, everybody's now starting to cover this, not just some of the Christian blogs that I follow or, or Christian news sites. And what they all are reporting was largely the same story. That in and of itself is evidence of some kind of a movement or awakening, right? (laughs) But the story is very consistent. And still, when you do a Google search about this, you find a lot of the same types of of things being said about this. Uh, But I picked out one one quote in particular from The Atlantic where the the, um, writer says this, the chapel speaker that day, a regularly scheduled chapel service that normally happens on the campus of Asbury University had exhorted the students to become the love of God by experiencing the love of God. And then he closed with a prayer asking God to revive us by your love. And by his own admission, he said he bombed it. He texted his wife and said, well, I'm glad that's over, but that was, did not go as I expected. According to the students, As they stayed and prayed, an unexplainable, surreal peace descended upon the room. As minutes stretched into hours, many students who had gone to class returned to the auditorium when they heard what was going on. They would eventually be joined by faculty, staff, and community members who trickled in to participate in worship and prayer. Christianity Today reports that they were struck by what seemed to be a quiet but powerful sense of transcendence, and they did not want to go. They stayed and continued to worship, and at the time of this writing, the author says, and they're still there. So this outpouring, as faculty and staff of Asbury are officially referring to it as, it it was a 24-hour, people didn't leave, around-the-clock worship service that stretched almost two weeks drawing thousands and spilling over into nearby auditoriums, towns, and college campuses across the country. So immediately, we have thoughts about this, I'm sure. People have thoughts of either um, suspicion 
Um, maybe you, you rejoice. Um, maybe um, you, like me, were curious and started following along on what was going on. I grew up with this kind of language around revival, this idea um, about the pinnacle of Christian experience. And, and, and revival, as I understand it, is not necessarily something we see in the Bible in this way. Um, we talk about being revived or things like that. But as far as an event, um, the way that we understand it in the modern church context, that's not necessarily something that, that we see. But it's something that we widely understand to be, like I said, this kind of pinnacle of Christian experience. And it's mostly described the way that this Asbury gathering looked on the outside. A really long worship service that people don't want to leave. And so... As much as I love the church, I love coming to church, I love singing, I love praising, this has always sounded kind of lame to me. (laughs) The pinnacle of Christian experience, the pinnacle of God working and moving, we're going to stay in church longer. And we're not going to want to leave. This is God's pinnacle of God's expression of himself. We'll be staying in church longer. I'd hope revival would look different. I would hope revival would look like something outside of church. What happens outside of church? What happens doing life together? What happens with service? What happens in the aisles of grocery stores? What happens in our homes? What happens in our workplaces? What happens out in town, in the city, in the streets? Not merely contained in a worship service. So I'm also... um, super leery, I'm sure as many of you are, of, of sensationalizing Christianity as well. This idea that God needs a salesman and that, you know, I have to kind of get people worked up. And, and I always, whenever I feel that, I always wonder what people's motives are. And, and we unfortunately are well aware of a fair amount of control, manipulation, corruption, that the church is unfortunately seen in the name of Jesus. So the minute I see this, this concentration of sensationalism, you know, the, the, the guard goes up. What's really going on here? Who's doing this? What are their motives? Why are they doing this? How should I feel about this? But I remember one particular, so I was doing this, I was talking to family members about this, friends, and I was being skeptical. I, I really was. I was kind of poking. I said my thing about it being lame, that the... You know, the move of God was going to be a really long worship service that no one wanted to leave. And, um, you know, people were challenging me about it. Some people were agreeing, whatever. And so I started reading different articles. I actually started watching the live stream. I I really was like, what's going on here? And one of the articles that struck out to me, and and I could not find it again when I was preparing for this sermon, but one of the articles was written by one of the staff members, kind of in the middle of it all, at Asbury, one of the professors, and he said, um, we, revival isn't something that we can call it right now. Um, that's something you get to talk about later after the fact. You get to look back and see what God did and be able to kind of define it that way or you, you can label it that way then or you can categorize it that way. But what is happening right now, all we know what's happening right now is that there is a special sense of the presence and power of God that is real that is felt, and that is, that is not leaving. And when I heard that, I thought, sign me up for that. 
That is something that, that I couldn't, that I don't think any of us can argue with. Now, we want to label it or figure out what it's called. That's another story. But I think this idea about the pre, a special sense of the power and the presence of God working in this way. So why is it that there are things like this that, that draw us, that, that affect our attentions, that make us want that or make us want to understand that or something like that? And I think that the, at the height of it is, is that we want God to work. And in our minds, the way that God works, if God, when God works, is going to be sensational because God is big and God is um, otherworldly. Um, and so we want that to be sensational. We expect that to be grand, and we expect that to be rather in our faces. But the remarkable thing about the way that we see God work in the Gospels and in a text like we have today is that it's remarkably unremarkable and often extremely counter to what, we, what was even wanted, what was expected, or what was perceived to be needed at the time. That's often the way that we see these things happening. Who Jesus is, the way that he works, I think that it's safe to say it's just different than we often think it should be. And if we don't understand that, even being a simple idea, we will miss what he's doing. So when we look at the text here in John chapter 12, and we see, we see uh, John giving this um, really wonderful narrative or this expression of Jesus kind of revealing himself, of him showing up on the way to the cross. And he established, he's establishing his kingdom. This is time. John, all the events of John are kind of one stacked on top of the other, the crescendo kind of growing. And this is his moment. This is his party. This is his time. And what does it look like? Weird. Kind of weird. Different. Not, not the way we would, we would expect and the Gospels, the, the four books at the beginning of the New Testament, they're all accounts from people who were with Jesus during his life, and they talk about and they observe, and they talk about what they observed, what they experienced, and they're, they're telling very similar stories, but all with different nuance, all from different perspectives. And from those different perspectives, uh, we, we get a picture, we get, a, we get an understanding they were, they were a diverse bunch of people, much like us. They had different upbringings. They had different vocations. They had different economic statuses. And they had a host of experience that caused them to observe things in different nuanced ways. And through these, these perspectives, we get this picture of who Jesus is and, and what he was like and how he acted. All four of the Gospels read together as a whole help flesh this idea out. So what's John's perspective? John is essentially giving, bringing to us a concept, this idea. He's saying, what if God were a person? What if God were a person? What if he was human? What if what we understand of God in an ethereal sense apart from us or up there, however we want to think about it, was here? What if he lived in our world? What if he had friends? What if he had a job? What if he had parents and siblings? What if he experienced pain? 
temptation, loss? What if he got angry? What if he cried? What if he laughed? What if he had enemies? What if he encountered needy people, people with illness or disease, people that were of lower class or of upper class or less educated or more educated? How would he respond to political polarization, national tragedy, cataclysmic world events, and even progress? How would he interact with his world? This is John essentially asking or posing this question in a way as we read through the gospel. And John gives us answers to all these questions. We get to see how God lived as a man. Our same world, albeit in an ancient context, but nonetheless really living in a real world with joy, with its joy, pain, life, death, and everything in between. He tells us uh, in, in the first chapter in verse 14 that the word, and that's his reference to Jesus, uh, or that's his reference to God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So Jesus then is, is the personification of God. We want to understand the heart of God we get to when we look at Jesus. The heart of God experienced, and this is the glory of the Gospels, is to be able to see this. And in John in particular, as he's kind of trying to um, help us understand this aspect of who Jesus is and how we can understand him as the personification of God. What is God's heart toward us? We can look at Jesus. We can see how Jesus acted and responded and lived uh, in a world like ours. So as we get, um, as we take a look at what is going on in these particular events, we get, get to uh, kind of think about what we all need as people. Yes, these people that were welcoming Jesus into the city may have been very different from us culturally um, and in a lot of other different ways. But there's a lot of things that we share as we think about people and the needs that we have and how we all kind of uh, embrace and interact with Jesus. So Jesus has been, or let me, let me just read that just to keep that um, in front of us in chapter 12. So we've got the first, we'll just take a look at the first couple of verses here with this point. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So Jesus has been slowly making his way to this moment as he's been working through, as he's been um, kind of, as we read about him in the book of John. His ministry up to this point has been marked with care, compassion, and miracles, and so for the most part, it, it seems as we think, as we look at Jesus and we look at his ministry, is that he's been trying to kind of, kind of curb excitement toward him, kind of trying to um, quiet this ever-growing surge of energy that has been kind of gathering around him in his ministry, and it's, and it's tactical. His, his goal is the cross, but at this point, he is, he is again, the personification of, personification of God on earth, living a life like a lot of us live, 
but he is uh, in, with intent. So his ministry is starting to, to make waves. The things that he's doing, the possible implications of who he might be, how that matches up with people's expectations, how that matches up with prophecy. And so we have this person, this personification of God as God living in this world, and he's just responding to need. He's responding to need in all kinds of ways. Some of them are really simple and tangible. He's at a wedding that friends invited him to. They run out of wine in order to help not embarrass the host and to make sure all the guests are having a good time. The heart of God acts and turns water into wine to make sure that everyone have enough. Very kind of practical, tangible um, uh, act there. Then, then we see him uh, healing people that have diseases and then forgiving people's sins. And then ultimately we see right before this act that um, this passage talks about is him, his friend is sick and he goes to help. His friend has died and he raises him from the dead. Now everything just starts to break loose because it can't be held back any longer. The word of this is spreading. Lots of people are there, and the excitement is building and building and building and building. And then, then all of a sudden, right after that, is the Jewish holiday of Passover. And so that's the events that we're taking a look at here that is uh, swirling around uh, these things. So the biggest event of the year for all of Israel, they're converging on Jerusalem and they're worshiping and they're sacrificing and they're repenting and they're looking forward to all of God's promises to be filled, fulfilled in this Messiah. The series that we did earlier this year in uh, the Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, those were the Psalms that would be sung at this time as they're heading toward and up into Jerusalem. And this is the time that Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem. So this is calculated. This is intentional and this is purposeful. This is, if you are trying to avoid the inevitable, the surge of excitement, people want to make you king. Then you have the other, the other players that are at hand here, the, the religious uh, leaders and then the political authorities that are threatened by this. They don't want an uprising. They don't want rebellion. And so you have all these tensions happening. Jerusalem would be the place you would avoid because that's where all of that is going to kind of, uh, kind of be connecting. But Jesus says, this is the time for me to go to Jerusalem. Up to this point, he's been avoiding um, areas like this and opportunity like this because of um, how it would escalate things toward his inevitable death. But this is calculated. So the fervor and the excitement are really welling up into a crescendo. Um, everybody that had been at Lazarus' grave, everyone had heard about that event. They're hearing this. They're like, I think he's coming to Jerusalem. I think he might be coming to Passover. And, and everything is kind of converging on this, on this event. Scholars tell us that the Passover attracted probably well over 2 million people. So this was not a, a small event. This was not a small thing that was happening. This was significant. So this scene is intense. And people are crying out, Hosanna. So the excitement is accumulating in this group gathering, this massive welcoming party. But, but what is this word? What are they saying? This Hosanna. This is the language of the Psalms. This is worship. But what does this mean? One commentator said that the cry of Hosanna is a Hebrew word 
that had become a greeting or shout of praise, but that that actually meant save or help, an intensive form of imperative. Not surprisingly, forms of this word were used to address the king with a need. So, so which is it? Is this, is this worship or is this a cry of need? Yeah, both. It's both at the same time. It's an expression of worship and it's a cry of need. And I think as we, as we kind of consider that, that concept or that idea that these people were addressing and worshiping God with this cry of need, this in, intense cry of need, with an expectation that there would be something done about this. This is something that is said to a king that this is one of the more appropriate expressions of worship that there is. To be approaching God in worship with a posture of need. And I think nothing really opens us up to receiving God fully quite like a posture of need and really seeing who he is and what he's about and what he can be for us. I think that we're often unable to experience all that God is doing in both ordinary and extraordinary ways because we're often not open to our need for whatever reason. It's a vulnerable place. And so when we're not open to our need, it can consequently then be hard for us to embrace gratitude. It can be hard for us to embrace blessing. It can be hard for us to embrace correction. It can be hard for us to embrace all of those things that revolve around community in that real sense when we are not embracing our need as an act of worship and as an act of community. And I think it's often because we're just, we have a lot. Even in our moments where we're grumpy and we're frustrated, we, most of us can admit we have a lot. And we're dependent on that. To, to solve our problems. Um, and I think that this posture of dependence is often a very rare thing for us to kind of confront and, and understand. I, I think some of the most meaningful times of really connecting with other people and learning from them, being mentored by them, is just seeing somebody who has just a posture of need. And when we have a posture of need, we're able to really um, connect not only with God, but with each other. And our pride and our, our sense of being judgmental um, can, can kind of be a wall to really being able to embrace that kind of idea of being needy people. And need, I think, we could say, is one of the highest forms of worship that there is. And I think need also as being vulnerable is something that we don't necessarily want to reveal to each other. Embarrassment, um, shame. Um, maybe it just makes us feel uh, that, 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 that people are going to do things for us and that we're going to owe them. Um, there's all kinds of different, there are different ideas, I think, that come into this being something that we resist or we try to keep things bottled up. We try to hope that no one will see that vulnerability so that we don't have to uh, embrace, you know, those kinds of feelings. And I think the thing that's, that's um, often very, that's funny about that is that usually none of us are fooled. Like the person in your group 
that's kind of hiding those things. We all know. And we just wish you would tell us and then we could give you a hug. <laughs> and we could tell you that we love you anyway. And uh, we, and we uh, care about you. And that our feelings towards you are not changed at all for understanding that need. Only heightened often. Um, when we think about the, the narrative uh, in the Gospels where, where we're told a story about a lost son. And when he finally realized, uh, when he finally came to himself about his need, he could go back. And in going back, he was able to experience the father waiting for him and embracing him. And he'd been waiting for him all along. So I think that's true of each other too, and true of our community, and true of the heart of God as expressed in Jesus. That our that need can be worship, and that we can see who God is in those moments even more fully. Ray Ortland says that if weakness is the place of Christ's power, may we be weak enough. So I think all that we need, what do we need? We answer that question from the first point, need. This is the place of restoration, renewal, and redemption, the place of true community, vulnerability, and salvation. So this was the, the posture that the people of Israel had as Jesus approached the city and revealed himself in this way. Now, the, the rub comes when we think about our need and then our expectation of filling that need. How do those things work? So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. So they go out there, they're shouting the words of verse 13. This is, this is the Psalm of Ascent, like we've said, but it's slightly adapted. There's a bit of a twist. So the first bit is from the Psalm of Ascent, but they added something to it. One commentator says that the words, blessed is he who comes, were widely understood as a reference to the coming one, the Messiah. The messianic meaning is explicit in the following words. Blessed is the king of Israel, which are not part of the psalm, but show how the crowd were understanding it. So the last bit, the king of Israel, is added. This nationalistic and messianic fervor was fueled, as John tells us, by the raising of Lazarus, which was a lot wildly widely reported to the crowd coming out from the city by those traveling with Jesus. Jesus is hailed as the king who is the conqueror of death. Faced with this nationalistic politicization of the messianic title, as he had been in Galilee, Jesus again takes corrective action in Galilee. He withdrew into the hills and Jerusalem, he mounts a donkey. So the implications are clear. This even the king of Israel is is adding their, their expectations to, to the need. And I think we can, we can wrap our heads around this, right? Like the way that we come to God, we, we may approach, that, approach him with need, but we also often approach him with expectation. So I got a problem, and, I, and, and you should be grateful that I also have a way for you to solve that problem. So you don't have to think about that. So Israel's need for a king, though, as we think about their particular need here for a political, nationalistic savior, it's not insignificant. And when we think about what our needs are and then what, what, God's, what the expectations are for God to answer those and what our hopes are for him, it's not to diminish our needs and diminish our hope for how those are 
being met because the need here for Israel was significant. Jesus lived, ministered in, I would say, arguably some of the most politically intense and tumultuous times in history. And that's a lot for me to say right now. Those were happening in Jesus' times. Roman occupation, the promise, the need of freedom and independence. And Rome was a massive threat to the Jewish people. Rome was a massive threat to the promises of God for the Jewish people. So they weren't without reason to see that as the problem and to come to Jesus with specific expectations that he would solve that particular problem. Save us now. And they're waving those palm branches. So they're betting on the fact that this was going to be the thing. And, And they have a problem. There's a Messiah coming. What's needed here? What do they need? They need to win. They need to win. They need victory in the obvious sense. Sense. We need to win. They need to lose. Roman occupation needs to be over. We need to be establishing our government, our kingdom, in the actual real sense. Uh, one, One scholar on a blog that I read said, so the crowds were right. They were right to praise Jesus as king, for that's who he is. They were right to say Hosanna, which means Lord save us, for that is what he came to do. And they were right to expect that he had come to Jerusalem to establish God's kingdom and reconcile people to God. They were simply wrong in how they expected him to do it. So we're often right about what we need, but I would say more often than not, we're often wrong about how he'll deliver that. So what do we expect? We expect to be saved, however we want to define that, immediately and on our terms. So then how does Christ respond to this? Uh, John tells us that he found a young donkey and he sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So how did he respond? Well, he responded in an odd way. And the, the reason we, I say it's an odd way was because if he was a conqueror that met the expectations that would have been in this time period, he would have done it uh, differently. He would have gone on a horse. He would have, he would have used, he would have used uh, symbols at his disposal to communicate strength. And he would have used symbols at his disposal, symbolism being a very important thing during this time period, he would have used those kinds of symbols to say, um, they were in charge and now I'm in charge. And those were the types of things that he would have done. Those, that would have been very effective for him to do that. A horse would have been an obvious choice to ride into town uh, along with probably many other kinds of symbolic gestures. But what does he do? He takes not an animal that would lead the charge into war, but an animal that would carry all the stuff that would serve. And he rides on that. So I think that's one way that Christ responds. I think the other thing, just to take a step back and slow down, is to say, how does Christ respond? Well, he does respond, first of all. He responds, even with misplaced expectations. I think that's encouraging. That's a sign of his grace. So he is responding. He just isn't necessarily responding the way we want him to, the way we expect him to, the way we think we need him to. So this is very intentional. 
Jesus wasn't just having a hard time finding a horse. <laughs> Some of the gospel writers say that this was premeditated. Like he, he planned it with the owners. Some of, the, some of his disciples go and ask owners for this donkey and they tell them that Jesus needs it and the, donkeys are, and the owners are like, oh yeah, okay, yeah. Like they had had that conversation. Go ahead, take, take it. And even aside from that, John tells us that this was prophesied. So this was something that prophets have been talking about. So all of this stuff is lining up. But to a lot of people that were watching, this was disappointing and this was a bit confusing. His disciples said so they didn't understand these things at first. But they remembered them later after he was glorified. Why didn't they understand them? Well, it wasn't, didn't meet their expectation either. We need a savior. We need someone to rescue us in this political way. We need to win. We've been losing forever. We need to win. Uh, another the, another uh, blog article I read, actually the same one, he says they saw Jesus' arrival as a king coming to assume his throne. And Jesus saw his arrival as a dead man walking, coming to be executed. Two very different perspectives. So Jesus enters into an environment full of need, crying out for salvation. And Jesus responds so different yet precise and loving and fulfilling. And I think it's also important to note um, there wasn't, these weren't, I, I can say this thousands of years later, how wonderful it was that he arrived that way, how precise and how fulfilling. They didn't feel that at the time. That's what John's telling us. They were confused. But I think it's important to note that Every act of Christ that's recorded in the Gospels had a significant role in obtaining and securing our salvation. Everything that's recorded was all lined up. It all mattered. And if it wasn't directly, it was most def definitely indirectly related. And how much more could that be true of our lives, of the things that are happening? And, and I don't want to get into like a weird theological discussion about how God works in pain and suffering. It's super, super tough. I have tons of questions and more with every year that goes by. But it's hard to not see this play out here as we look back on this event and see how all of these things mattered for our salvation and how the different things that are happening in our lives now are a constant move toward redemption, reconciliation, and restoration in one form or another. This is his heart. This is his design, and this is his confident promise that this is his intent in our lives. This is where everything is moving. And it often doesn't look any less weird or frustrating or confusing, but it's just as effective and just as intentional. So not a conquering king, a humble man riding on a symbol of servitude. He came to lose, not to win. This is, this, this is so counterculture to the way we think about our lives and our role here. Um, Jesus came and he lost. 
I think probably the, the, the most countercultural thing we could do would be embrace that mindset as a um, affluent uh, American society. That maybe that matters more than winning in the long term, depending on how you want to define that. Jesus' purpose, Tim Keller said, is not to warm our hearts, but to shatter our categories. <laughs> I, think, I think that that's often true, whether we want to say it's his main purpose or not. I think that's a really um, compelling thought as he wants us to think about things the way that he thinks about them, which are not the way that we often categorize things. We want revolution. We want immediate justice. But what if the path to winning sometimes looks like losing? What if it looks like uh, how Paul talked about love in 1 Corinthians 13? What if it looked like patience, long-suffering, self-control, forgiveness? Those are all the things that um, are are a definition of love that that, uh, Paul talks to us about. I love this quote from Tish Harrison Warren um, for, for, from her book, A Liturgy of the Ordinary. She says, a sign hangs on the wall in a new mon- monastic Christian community house. Everyone wants a revolution and no one wants to do the dishes. I was and remain a Christian who longs for revolution, for things to be made new and whole and beautiful in big ways. But what I'm slowly seeing is that you can't get to the revolution without learning to do the dishes. The kind of spiritual life and disciplines needed to sustain the Christian life are quiet, repetitive, and ordinary. I often want to skip the boring daily stuff to get to the thrill of an edgy faith, but it's the dailiness of the Christian faith, the making the bed, the doing the dishes, the praying for our enemies, the reading the Bible, the quiet, the small, that God's transformation takes root and grows. I think it was hard for me as I looked at that revival is like, well, what are these people doing with their lives? Like, what, like what, what's going to happen? Like, what are they doing with sin and confession and service? And like, what's really going on? Like, what, I, revival, it should look bigger than this. It shouldn't look like people just praying and singing or coming into a worship service. But it's the, it's the ordinary and the extraordinary combined, I think, that's so extraordinary. And one of the articles that I, that I read um, in the coming days was titled Ordinary and Extraordinary, where I got the title of a sermon from, A Day at the Asbury Awakening um, by Doug Hankins. And he goes to this gathering, and he, he's like, I want to know the answers to a lot of these questions. I want to see what's going on. And I pulled out just a few different quotes that were, that were meaningful to me as he starts observing. And this, this is a common observation with people that were there was the ordinariness of it. A lot of the things that mark our generation and our culture, sensationalism, technology, uh, celebrity, Christian celebrities, all of that was, was uh, remarkably missing from this, from this uh, gathering and from this movement. He says, I'm curious... Uh, he's talking as, he, as he's thinking about going, I'm curious if the revival I'm walking into will be anything like Raiders of the Lost Ark. But 10 steps into the worship space and there's no face melting. I just hear loud singing 
like an ordinary worship gathering. He also talks, talks about an experience of meeting some people from, that, had come, um, that were Indian and they come from another part of the country. They asked me if I could pray with them. We pray for one another and I'm moved by this simple act of prayer. This is extraordinary. He talks about the worship music and the singing. There are no lyrics on, there was no um, screens well, I don't know most of the modern worship songs. He says, I'm able to search the lyrics on my phone to keep up. I wasn't sure if cell reception would be a problem in this old building full of so many people, but it isn't. Revivals are built on the back of ordinary things, even cell reception, Google searches, and lyric websites. One gentleman kindly asks any jumpers not to do so in the 100-year-old balcony but instead to move to the main floor to continue their expression of worship. Everyone in the crowd laughs and people on the main level shift seats to make room for the jumpers. What an ordinary concern met with extraordinary humility and grace. On the lawn, a church group has brought Little Caesar's pizzas and is giving away slices. A man with a food truck is parked on the east lawn offering free food and prayer. Ordinary and extraordinary. A child climbs a tree and a staffer politely asks him to climb down. People outside break into song as they watch and hear the people inside via the screen and speakers. Kids play tag. Parents drink coffee. People are chatting. People walk into the portable washrooms. College students walk past the crowds to get to their dorms. Some people take selfies on their phones. One man stands alone praying silently. Practical, spiritual, ordinary, and extraordinary. All at once. When Paul prays for us in his epistle to the Ephesians, perhaps he has something like this in mind. So how Christ responded on Palm Sunday was odd, it was unexpected, and it was ordinary in nature, and in that it was extraordinary because it revealed the heart of God for us. That these intentional acts, the way that he decided to show up and to reveal himself, were all connected to our salvation, our reconciliation, our restoration, and our redemption. So too are the things that are happening every day in our lives. And when I read those articles, I was, uh, we have a group chat with uh, my wife and our two older daughters that have phones. I was sending them articles. We were talking about it at night. And I said, may God do something ordinary and extraordinary in our family too. Amen. The way God works and who Jesus is is different than we think. And we're going to miss it if we don't know that. As we close in prayer, I'd love to close with uh, what Paul says to the Ephesians that the author of that article mentioned. And I'd like to close it as a blessing. And so I'm going to pray it over you and for us. And you can receive that however you would like. Hold out your hands. You can stand. You can uh, sit. Um, but I'll... I'll read this and pray this over us as a blessing, that this is God's hope for us, this is God's heart for us, expressed 
uh, in Jesus um, as we've kind of read and heard about today. Let's pray. For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.